First Timothy chapter four, verse one to sixteen, really is is coming on the heels of verse sixteen of chapter three. So what I'm going to do is read chapter three, verse sixteen, through chapter four, uh, verse one to sixteen. So um, our big idea. If you could say it that way, our big idea this morning is this, that really summarizes this passage, and it's that right teaching and its practice is a preserving grace, is a preserving grace. It's one of many preserving graces God gives us in Christ, but right teaching and its practice is a preserving grace in our salvation, and it is everyone's responsibility. Okay? Which is why this time is key in the life of the body of Christ. This is where we come from God's word and lay that foundation of Christian orthodoxy so that we hear and we're able to go and filter that out among the body as we make disciples. So right teaching and its practice is a preserving grace in our salvation and it is everyone's responsibility. So chapter 3 verse 16, here we go. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, And of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with the reverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given by, uh, which was given you, see I would have said to you, but I didn't inspire scripture and that always trips me up, Paul's grammar, pardon me. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Wow. Correct teaching. We studied this last week in Ephesians 4. Correct teaching is everybody's responsibility as every joint and ligament supplies its necessary gifted part to the whole body to help grow the whole body up into Christ. 
And now, as we grow in understanding what we believe in its application, that's what we're studying this series. It'll take us up to Advent. It's what do we believe? Why do we believe these things? What are they? Now that we understand that it's everyone's responsibility and getting that right is a key component in our growth in Christ and our salvation, it is essential that we begin to understand some nuance at this task of teaching right things to one another so that we grow up into Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16 and 1 Timothy 4.16 are bookend passages. Alright? They're bookends. And remember, in your Bible, chapter and verses are not inspired. They were added later for help in translation and help in reading. Right? And so one of the things that chapter and verse numbers do for us is help us not read the story as it's supposed to be read. This is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. And so Paul didn't divide chapter 3 verse 16 from chapter 4 verse 1. Does that make sense? So it's important that you see verse 16 of chapter 3 and verse 16 of chapter 4 are bookends of a section. And those two bookends tell us something very important. Verse 16 of chapter 3 tells us Jesus is the centerpiece and the very thing that was hidden but is no longer hidden. That's when Paul uses that word mystery. He has in mind this idea you used to didn't know but now you know. And he's speaking of Jesus. That Jesus is the interpretive key to the whole Bible. He is the centerpiece, the center point. He is that interpretive key that unlocks absolutely everything. And then chapter 4 verse 16 tells us you persist in this. Persist in this. Keep it in front of people for by so doing. Doing what? Keeping Jesus as the centerpiece, the interpretive key, the interpretive center of everything. He said, in so doing, you save both yourself and your hearers. We can't walk away from that. We can't pretend that's not there. We must dive into that and lean into that. Jesus, Trinitarian reality is the foundation of all Christian doctrine, and it is the standard by which we determine right and wrong. Paul's going to say, actually, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, to not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, which is according to the principalities and powers and rulers of this world, and not according to Christ. He's not saying philosophy is wrong. What he's saying is philosophy not unlocked by Jesus takes you into a different story. Meaning Jesus created wisdom. He loves wisdom. That's what philosophy means. Phileo Sophia, the love of wisdom, is Jesus's. It belongs to him. And he is the interpretive key that unlocks it. So he's telling them, don't be deceived by an interpretive philosophy that is something other than Jesus. Meaning, what Paul is telling Timothy, the centerpiece of all things, the interpretive key of all things, is none other than Jesus And therefore is going to provide the contrast that he's going to give us in verse 1 of chapter 4 through verse 15. And remember, this right teaching is everyone's responsibility. I always feel compelled to say this if I'm teaching from the book of 1 and 2 Timothy. Is it just because Paul wrote to Timothy, who was the elder responsible for overseeing the church at Ephesus at the time, does not mean the church at Ephesus 
didn't have to do what's written in the book. Right? It's not like, Timothy, be careful with drunkenness. Be careful with these things. And oh, by the way, you Ephesians, feel free. That's the, no, 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 no. So there's no escaping the text. Does that make sense? That is, a, listen, I don't want me to be rude, but that's a very Catholic, unbiblical way of thinking. Everybody in this room, if the scriptures are correct and they are, are priests to the Lord. Gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve one another and grow each other up into Christ. Meaning there's no priestly class and laity. I'm just going to be very frank for a second. I'm frustrated even in our Protestant world, our evangelical world, we still use this word laity. Because it carries this idea in your psyche and mind that somehow there's the exalted in the rest of us. There's no such thing as the exalted in the rest of us. We are in Christ and priest to the Lord. God's established proper biblical church leadership. Pastor Emmett's going to preach on that in a few weeks. But that doesn't mean I'm up and you're down or you're down and I'm up. It means we have a task together, gifted by the Spirit, to grow each other up into Christ. So you and I, neither one of us can escape the instruction of 1 Timothy 4. That makes sense? So this isn't just to me and your pastors, it's to all of us. So right teaching and its application is everybody's responsibility, which is why it's important that we teach you well. So that's the exposition of the text. That's what the text says. Now what's the application? The application is really verse 1 to 15. Paul gets very practical here. And he gives us some things to believe. And he gives us some things to practice. So that's what we're going to spend the next 25 minutes and 12 seconds doing. Is taking this reality that Jesus is the interpretive key of everything. And we are to persist in this because there's salvation in it for us. It's one of God's good graces to keep us in Christ. Now the question is, what are we going to do with that? Number one, this one isn't in the text. So grant me a little liberty for a moment because it's important culturally for us. And that is, we as followers of Jesus Christ together in covenant fellowship and in fellowship with other covenant fellowships have to learn to distinguish between doctrine, Bible teaching, and strategic implementation for the sake of our unity. Doctrine is fixed by the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is fixed. It doesn't shift with time. There is some room for debate in certain nuances of theologies. And we can debate those inside a spectrum of Christian orthodoxy. But there's ample space to grant freedom to other fellowships and to one another in our implementation and practice of fixed doctrines. I.e., example, evangelism. Make sense? The Bible says evangelize. How? Preach the gospel. How do you apply that? Feel free. Make sense? And so what I'm saying here is let's not take the stance that they do it differently than us. They're sinning. They're heretical, right? We throw that word heresy around too easily in evangelical culture. And we apply it based on people's practice of doctrine, not necessarily the core foundation of what's driving their practice. And what I want us to say is let's be careful with that. Unless it's prescribed by Scripture, let's grant each other a little bit of room to make practice. Let me just give you one of my favorite pet peeves one that I just don't even go there anymore. 
when people want to criticize inside our town about being reformed or not being reformed, and they want to drop the hammer on reformed people, what I want to say, and I've, I've actually invited people, is that, you know what, you want to see evangelism in practice, why don't you get on a plane with me to Afghanistan? And we'll sit down with some Muslim scholars, and, and I'll let you practice sharing the faith with me. I'll let you go first. No, 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 that's dangerous. No, 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 but we, sh- we will preach the gospel to everybody, right? Does that make sense? And so what some people want to do is they want to argue over some of those things. What I want to say is, look, when you practice what you say you believe, you can criticize my evangelism, right? If you believe that, then you ought to be preaching to everybody that walks in the door of this coffee shop, right? So go at it. My point is, let's be careful. Let's be careful to not beat people up over nuances and strategic differences. Another example is loving your enemy is commanded in Scripture. How you love them is not commanded. Right? Just love your enemy. And grant freedom to love our enemies well. Right? The Bible translation you use is not prescribed in Scripture. And it's not heresy if you don't use the ESV. Right? Or whatever you use. In other words, we've got to distinguish between Bible doctrine and strategic implementation. So as we talk about what we believe as a church, let us not be arrogant that nobody else gets it. Got me? You tracking? A lot of other people believe the same stuff. They just apply it differently and it's okay. Right? All right, here we go. Application number one that comes out of the text is found in verse one. You and I have to believe that if Jesus is the interpretive key, as Paul has taught us that he is, and that this is central for us in getting this right in our salvation, we need to believe that departure from the faith is a real possibility due from departing or due to departing from right teaching. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, you're there, been there since Jesus came, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You and I have to believe, if we're to hold fast to right teaching, that it's possible to throw right teaching away and depart from Jesus. I don't know how much you keep up with evangelical culture. But two weeks ago, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Heard of that book? Informed an entire generation of how people, young people, girls and guys interact with each other. Divorced his wife and put on Instagram, he is no longer a Christian. He has departed from the faith. And it started when he started departing from Jesus as the epicenter and made dating or not dating his God. He turned a strategy into his God and he eventually walked away from Jesus. And you and I need to believe that departure from the faith is a real possibility due to Christless teaching. If somebody's in Jesus, hear me clearly, if they are truly in Christ, they will stay in Christ. Jesus said very clearly, those the Father has given me will come to me, 
and I will in no way cast them out. And those he gives me, I hold them and I lose none of them. If you are in Christ, you will stay in Christ. But know this, if you are not in Christ and you are following dating or courting above Jesus and you put a Christian t-shirt on dating and courting, you could walk away from that and mistake it for something else. And Paul's point is, great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. Jesus is the interpretive key. And staying on Jesus is the key. When we depart from that and we go somewhere else, it is possible that we're not in Christ. Never have been. This is sobering, isn't it? It's sobering. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, would you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Listen, man, in a Christian subculture in which you live, it is easy to mistake an idol for Jesus. You just need to call it Jesus. You know what God was most concerned with in the Old Testament? Not their sexual ethic, not their politics. He was concerned with their idolatry. It's not that they didn't sin in their politics or their ethics. They did. But it started with the fact that Solomon above the Lord brought in other gods. And for us the key is we must stay on the interpretive key of Jesus Christ who unlocks everything. Jesus warned us that this would happen. That this would be a possibility in Mark 13, 22 to 23, where he said, False Christs and false prophets will arise and even perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I've told you all this beforehand. In other words, this is coming, guys. There are going to be people who stand up in my name and tell you I, I'm Jesus' servant. And he said they're not. And if possible, they would deceive my elect. They're going to deceive some people, but my people are going to hang on in me. Which is why Paul is telling us, guys, the centerpiece of all this is Jesus. Okay? Application number two, found in the second part of verse one. We need to believe that it's possible to mistake the teaching of demons for the right teaching of God's word. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Okay, so they devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching, teachings of demons. So it's possible, you're saying, it's possible that I can mistake a teaching for right teaching when in fact it's demonic teaching. Yes, it's possible. Which means by way of implication here, demons teach. Which leads us to verse 2 in the third application. We need to believe that demonic teaching comes through human teachers. Look at verse 2. Through, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Meaning a lying human stands up, proclaims something, says it's Jesus. Paul says that's demonic and it comes through a human vehicle. We need to believe that Demonic teachings can fill the podcasts, the blogs, the television channels, the books, 
through the consciences of liars who have had their consciences seared. It is possible for a person to stand and teach something as truth and in fact be a vehicle of demonic teaching. Which is why the Bible is later going to tell us in the book of James, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. I'm going to stand before Jesus for what I say to you or don't say to you. That's sobering. And so will everybody else who stands with a Bible open and says, thus says the Lord, and perhaps he didn't say it. Which is why we have to go back to that first application and know the difference between doctrine and strategic implementation. And it's all of our responsibility to know that. Next, verse 3. We need to believe that false teaching tries to forbid the good things of God. Verse 3, who forbid marriage. And in this instance, at the church at Ephesus, these were the issues that Timothy was having to wrestle with from outside sources. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. False teaching tries to forbid the good things of God. Let me give you a flip side of that coin. False teaching also uses Jesus as justification for having some fringe passions that we try to disciple people into before Jesus. You see, what was happening here at the church at Ephesus, there were Jesus people who were saying marriage isn't good. Don't eat that. And they had taken don't eat that and don't get married and set it above Jesus, who Paul told us in verse 16 of chapter 3 is the interpretive key for all of it. And so, by application, Paul tells Timothy here, Hey, all that food's good, eat it. Because God made it. Right? Distinguishing between those who are going, In Jesus' name, don't eat that. And Paul's going, In Jesus' name, eat it. Right? And so his people had to make a decision. Which one's right? The one that has Jesus at the top. That's the one that's right. Now, I made a list of things. That you will never see. And the reason is if you saw them. The hate mail to me would be a mile long. It just would. I'd get it from all corners of the universe. So I wrote those things down and deleted them. And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to point out what sits at the top of our org chart of our heart. Alright, I'm going to trust him to do that, so hear me. Be careful with cultural Christian laws that are not biblical commands. This is as close as I'm going to get to being specific. (laughs) Including food, drink, and medicine, and political agendas. There are people who can disciple you into those categories and cannot articulate Jesus. That is called idolatry and it's a demonic teaching that has set itself up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we can articulate our medicinal ideology, our food ideology, 
or our political ideology and have not read our Bibles through and can articulate the gospel, we have departed from Jesus as the interpretive key. Which is why Christian subculture is rotten because it has a bunch of disciples who've been discipled into something other than Jesus and they stuck a cross on the front of it and everybody thinks they're going to heaven. And, and the list is a mile long of those things. But with eyes to see in a Christian subculture, if, when you know Jesus has the interpretive key, those things start standing out. The lines get drawn very neatly between them and you start going, oh, that's not right. That sounds good, but that's not right. That might be okay, but it's not number one. Right? Be careful what you get made a disciple of and who you're making disciples to. Jesus is the center point, the interpretive key of all those things. You see, one of the things I find fascinating about Christian subculture is it's easy to look back to the people in the Bible and throw rocks at them like fools, morons. Man, I can't believe they do that. And I think Jesus is going, hey, look in the mirror, Jolly. You're just too sophisticated to put a wooden idol on your shelf. You can't touch or see yours. It's an idea. It's a thought. It's a presupposition. And I think we all fit into that category. Which is why Paul said, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Do you not realize Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, He ain't. Man. And when you realize it's all of our responsibilities to know that and grow each other up into Christ, that gets a little more like, ooh, this is serious. Life and death hangs here, y'all. Like one of the things that's not popular to do in evangelical culture is just talk about doctrine. What do we believe? We just assume, and assuming is a bad thing. You know what I find fascinating? We operate our businesses with full knowledge of things, but when it comes to our spirituality, we just want generalities. Because you know what the difference is? There's money on the line over here. But when it comes to spiritual stuff, don't tell me that. Don't, don't say that. I just, just, want, just want to keep it. just want to feel good. Right? Why do we operate like that in here? Or out in the business world, but come inside spirituality. Don't tell me those things. Don't tell me I just want to feel a certain way. I'm coming to get my fix, man. Could be because this sets at the top of my heart's org chart. And see, Paul is instructing Timothy that here at the church at Ephesus, brother, you got to deal with this. And here's how you do it. Keep Jesus at the center. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearer. Meaning, there's something at stake in what we believe. I can't just believe whatever I want to believe. You can't just believe whatever you want to believe. Does that make sense? Next, we need to recognize verse 6. We serve Jesus well by putting right teaching in front of each other. So how do I serve Jesus well today? Verse 6, if you put these things before the, before the brothers... You're a good servant of Christ Jesus. You want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus today? Put this in front of each other tonight when you gather in radical life groups. Or unless you have a youth event this afternoon and have been meeting since 7 this morning. And when you get home tonight at 5, you're just going to put your feet up and try to forget there's such thing as the world. right? Which will be the jolly family tonight. But wherever you gather, wherever you gather, 
in the name of Jesus Christ, as a radical life group, put these things in front of each other. And Paul says, if you do that, you serve Jesus good. Goodly. Gooder. Goodest. Right? It's good to put this in front of each other. Verse 7, he tells us, avoid man-made theology. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. If you go back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he mentions these myths and endless genealogies which produce quarrels. For them, the myth or the endless genealogies were extra-biblical genealogies from a Jewish background that produced, in their minds, super saints. And so they focused on the super saints that came from these genealogies and the stories of their lives, which are mythological in nature. And they ended up producing quarrels and fights in the church. And Paul says here, avoid those things. Now, we don't do that, right? I find it fascinating. Here's another fa- rabbit trail, rabbit trail. Fascinating. People read their Bibles and they're like, genealogies. Oh my gosh, I can read genealogies. You don't want to read through genealogies, but America's gone nuts over Ancestry.com. Hmm. 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 Ancestry. Woo! Know where I came from, Bible? Forget that, man. That's boring. Come on, man. Come on, spiritual veil. I'm saying. And here's my point. Here's Paul's point. Avoid man-made theology. Avoid theology that comes from the soul of man. Avoid mythological theologies. Avoid unreal narratives that aren't biblical. For us, these can be extra-biblical things that are loosely tied to the Bible via a mere use of Bible words and spiritual-sounding words. I'm going to throw one at you because I've already mentioned them here. You ready? Here's one. Here's a man-made theology. Courting versus dating. There's your man-made theology. Courting's Biblical. Dating's not. Now, I'm probably going to get some hate mail, but... Because its author done walked away from Jesus. I dated my wife, married 20 years, July 31. And then we had to do back to school, so we ain't done jack for our 20th anniversary. <laughs> right, baby? Been going hard for 20 years. We dated, and we didn't do it all right. But the centerpiece of it is Jesus and His kingdom, and He has made it work. Right? Right? So it wasn't courting dating, it's Jesus. So we create theologies and we fight for them. And there are some of y'all who would probably fight over that issue. And argue about it. And what I would say is, please don't. Please don't. It ain't prescribed. Grant a little liberty. Right? So he says, avoid that trash. Your small group time's not worth it. Right? Get back on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You can't get through with that. If you finish that in ten minutes in your Bible study, you didn't do it justice. That is infinitely deep. That's eternity spilled into one verse in your Bible. 
the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We're going to get into who Jesus is a little bit later. Not today, but a few weeks down the line. You can't finish that up. You'll be stuck on that forever. You're going to be stuck on that in the kingdom and eternity forever. We're going to be standing before the Lord Jesus and go, but I, you, one, three, one, in your image, but help, hmm? And we're going to sit down with the Lord and we're going to eat a meal. And he's going to unpack it and we're going to give him glory and praise and honor. We're going to bow before the king of the universe and go, that was awesome. And five minutes later, go, can you, can you say it again? I need, I didn't quite get that third part. And he'll do it. So if you get through that in 10 minutes in your study, you ain't doing it right. You can't get through with Jesus. Avoid man-made theologies. Training for godliness, verse 7, the second part of verse 7 through verse 10. Training for godliness is how you avoid bad teaching. So how do you avoid bad teaching? Train for godliness. Train for godliness. Right? Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training has some value, boy, you're talking about confronting a Western ideology? Hundreds, thousands of dollars, working out, lifting weights. Four Bibles on the shelf got dust on them. There's, there's you an idol. I'm going to call that one out. Right? And, and even fighting over how you lift the weight. And arguing with what's better strategy and how you push the weight around. Even making disciples on your ideology. There are more people who can tell you this versus that than they can unpack the second person of the Trinity. That's that is not keeping the interpretive key the interpretive key. So training has some value in it. Yeah. But godliness has eternal value. So which one is more important? Which one gets the most time? How do you avoid bad teaching? Train for godliness. Right? Train for godliness. So how do you train for godliness? Well... There's only one way. You've got to get to know God. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, how do I get to know God? Through His Word. And with His people. Then be like Him. And He says, Train for godliness. Meaning, it's going to be work. It's going to be work. I'm a proud boast for a moment. You ready? This week on dumbbell presses, Jordan actually saw this. He saw me get bucked with the 85s. I did. I got one. I got it. Got back. so I get 80 pound dumbbells in each arm, and I can get a set of five with those suckers. And some of y'all are like you're weak. You come work out with me tomorrow. I'll show you weak. He saw it. Right. That that takes work. A lot of sweat. A lot of sets. Got to go up. If you don't get stronger, you just got to put more weight in your hands. Got to put more weight on the bar. It's the only way to do it. Right? It takes work. Right? We're willing to put that kind of work in. But you know, training for godliness requires work. You've got to set aside time. I set aside lunchtime. I go, unless i got an appointment, lunchtime's going to be sweating. just is what it is. So I put it on the calendar. I go do it. And I do everything necessary to get ready. I mean, eating, not right, but eating something. And what you can tell, he clearly doesn't eat right. But anyway, you get the point. So there's planning and organization that goes into it. 
Godliness requires some planning and organization. You've got to put it on the calendar. Read your Bible now. And the little alarm goes off. Oh, time to read the Bible. And you read your Bible. Oh, time for small group time. Go small group time. Be there. Oh, it's time to worship. My friend Dean and Sarah says it like this. Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. It is. Requires some foresight and planning. Train for that, Paul says. If you want to avoid false teaching, you've got to train. Verse 11. I'm way out of time, but we're almost done. We're to command and teach right belief. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. That doesn't get any clearer right there. It doesn't just command and teach it. Command it and then instruct it. Demand we do it and instruct on how. Verse 12. Set an example in right belief and practice. Let no one despise you for your youth or your age. Timothy was young. So Paul had to say, hey man, don't let them disrespect your youth. So let's make application. Don't let anybody disrespect your age or your youth. Be godly and then lead people to be godly. Right? So let no one despise you for your stage of life, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Verse 14, don't neglect the Spirit's gifting. This goes back to last week. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when a council of elders laid their hands on you. There's a lot here, and this is just not the context sermon for that. But there's something to life and and putting hands on one another in the sense of praying for each other and physical touch and eye-to-eye communication that God works in. This week... I've been counseling somebody, asking me stuff. So I gave him some counsel. I was in the weeds, had to sit down in front of a brother this week, and he gave me the same counsel I gave that person. I couldn't hear myself saying it to them. I need another image bearer I'm in covenant with to say it to me. And it's like, hey, right? There's something about image bearing covenant relationship and contact in which Holy Spirit just works. It's a mystery. I can't describe it, but I couldn't see what I was saying here. Needed somebody to tell it to me. So he says, don't neglect that. Don't put that aside. You've got to be together. Somebody needs to lay hands on you and pray for you, speak to you, look eye to eye into each other's souls and let the Holy Spirit do his thing over his word. He says, don't neglect that. Verse 15, practice everything. Right? Verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. Practice these things. What things? Everything we just said. I ain't going to go back over it. Practice them, meaning they take time. They take time. They take work. Practice these things. And then finally, this one isn't in the text, but I had to give it to you because this is my Bible reading this week. A key, a key to a people who are doctrinally sound is exuberant worship. All my Bible reading for the past month has been finishing up on Chronicles uh, and coming into Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's just chapter after chapter of singing and playing before the Lord in the temple, playing instruments before the Lord. And in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8 yesterday, oh my gosh, from early morning to midday, Ezra stood on the platform and read the Bible to the people, and the Levites were scattered among the crowd to make sure they were getting it and understanding it. And then they played some music and sang to the Lord. And everybody bowed their heads and put their faces to the ground and worshipped. You know what's missing in that? Their preference. It was all about the Lord Jesus. 
Ain't none of y'all sat here from early morning. I'd, I'd preach to you from 6 to noon if you'd sit here. I work hard at the, at the Word, and I, there, I'm, I'm not done now, but I'm stopping because the clock's been done for five minutes, and you'll leave if I don't, right? So here, here's my point. You know what? This time is not about necessarily your primary enjoyment. It is training for godliness. And then it's offering to the Lord what's good for Him. Same, man. Nothing in those passages is about the Levites just, well, that was good. Good for me. Was it good for you? Well, it's okay. Like that, that never happens in those passages. Did you, did you like, was that, no, it's, it's, they heard the word. They heard the word. They enjoyed the word. They sang the songs. They put their faces to the ground and they worshiped the Lord. You know what they understood? This is all about the Lord. And so what I want to say to us this morning, worship just isn't something the church does to draw a crowd. Shame on us if that's what we do. Worship is an exercise that shows we understand Jesus as the interpretive key to all things. Including what this time means for each other and for the Lord. So Three Rivers, can I just invite you to crucify yourself And focus completely and only on Jesus being the center of these next few moments. So that as we sing, we sing to the Lord. So that as we think, we think to the Lord. As we receive instruction, we receive it as from the Lord, back to the Lord for His glory and our good. And so that we might be grown up in Christ who is our head and serve one another in doing that. You see, that's what overtook the Roman Empire. That's what's overtaking the East today. A bunch of people who Jesus is at the middle of. Rome needs that bad. Rome needs that bad. You want to be that people? I believe we are. And I believe we need to lean into it a little more. Let's pray. We're going to worship David. Father, in Jesus' name, we want to believe right, believe well. We want your word to be a lamp for our feet and light for our path. And Holy Spirit, in any way, any way that um, I have spoken poorly, I ask that you correct that. Holy Spirit, I ask that any way that uh, your word wasn't represented well, that you correct that. Holy Spirit, I also ask that you would take your word and, and do do magical things with your word in the hearts of your people. Transcend our culture in this moment. Transcend our even our expectations. Holy Spirit, pray that you would just do magical things as we respond in worship. As we, maybe not literally for some of us, but maybe some, we bow our heads and put our face on the ground and worship in response to your word. But Lord, I pray that in that you would really do magical things. That you would, that you would uh, work in our hearts to break them for what they need to be broken for and lift them up where they need to be healed. That you would tear down things that are false and build up things that are right. Holy Spirit, pray you'd work reconciliation and peace and joy 
And all those things together in this moment, only you know every heart and what's needed. So I just want to ask you, would you minister there as it's needed? And help us to be good servants of that work now, we pray.